We are encountering silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. Please visit patreon.com forward slash encountering silence to learn more about how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all too noisy world. Kyra Jewel Lingo is a Dharma teacher who has a lifelong interest in blending spirituality and meditation with social justice. She grew up in an ecumenical Christian community where families practiced a new kind of monasticism and worked with the poor. At the age of 25, she entered a Buddhist monastery in the Plum Village tradition and spent 15 years living as a nun under the guidance of Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. She received lamp transmission from Thich Nhat Hanh and became a Zen teacher in 2007 and is also a teacher in the Vipassana Insight Lineage through Spirit Rock Meditation Center. Today, she sees her work as a continuation of the engaged Buddhism developed by Thich Nhat Hanh, as well as the work of her parents, inspired by their stories and her dad's work with Martin Luther King Jr. on desegregating the South. In addition to writing her book, We Were Made for These Times, 10 Lessons in Moving Through Change, Loss, and Disruption. She is also the editor of Thich Nhat Hanh's Planting Seeds, Practicing Mindfulness with Children. Now based in New York, Kyra Jewell teaches and leads retreats internationally, provides spiritual mentoring to groups, and interweaves art, play, nature, racial and earth justice, an embodied mindfulness practice in her teaching. She especially feels called to share the Dharma with Black, Indigenous, and people of color, as well as activists, educators, youth, artists, and families. To learn more about her and her work, visit kairajewel.com. Kyra Jewel Lingo, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you so much. It's really lovely to be with you. We love to uh, begin our conversations with our guests by um, just inviting you to share a little bit about your relationship with silence, maybe a particular moment or a story or just anything you feel led to share. Well, what's coming up is a memory from when I was little. Uh, I lived in Kenya for four years in this community that my parents were a part of that was doing village and human development projects in every time zone of the world. So we lived in a slum over a bar on the outskirts of Nairobi. And uh, my dad was doing fundraising to help, you know, like a community of 30, 40 people in this one three-story building. And, uh, he was traveling around East Africa to raise money for these village development projects. And we were in school getting kicked out because we couldn't afford the fees. And so the Catholic school took us in <laughs> without any fees. But so we had chapel. We had a, a chapel on our girls' campus. My brother went to the boys' school next door. I went to Loretto Convent, Masangari. 
And what's just coming up when you ask that question is a memory of being in the chapel at age maybe 11, 12, and just really connecting to the statue of Mother Mary. And I don't know if I stayed there after everyone had left, but it was a moment of real um, contemplation that I just fell into on my own, um, of looking at her and really feeling the emanation of of compassion, of something that I really wanted to be close to in that stillness, in that silence um, of this, you know, really sacred place that, you know, I think because I grew up in this community where every morning we went down to um, daily office, like we'd all wake up at the same time, even we were really little kids, there was a bell at five or 5.30 and, and we'd traipse down, probably still quite sleepy, and it would be dark in this. So we lived in an eight-story building in Chicago. This was where the Institute of Cultural Affairs or the Ecumenical Institute was headquartered. So the the place where all these other global projects, you know, they they were rooted. The, the mothership was this big eight-story old insurance building on the north side of Chicago. So we'd go down to the second floor every morning for daily office. It would be dark. There would be incense. There would be chanting, prayer. But I think I had something in me very early on resonated with that, that sense of a discipline of coming into a special place on a regular basis for something to shift in your mind, in your heart, communally. And so I think it was easy sort of for me to bring that kind of consciousness into this chapel in Nairobi um, and just to, you know, allow that moment of stillness, those moments, those times when I just sat there, you know, on my own. Um, so that, I appreciate the question because I haven't really gone back to explore that memory you know how there's like little riches that are buried in you and until someone asks you about it you're like hey, i never really <laughs> you know got the full picture of what this rich richness is in buried in me until i had the chance to pull it out and sort of spread it out and see all that made made that so kyra jewel one thing that that keeps coming to mind for me as i hear you speak and share that story is this idea of, of rhythm. Um, you mentioned the word discipline and even hearing the, the rhythm of your own voice as you speak to us. And in talking about the daily office and you know, in, in your experience in both the Christian and the Buddhist world, so also meditation, I wonder if that um, aspect of rhythm amid discipline is something that contributes to the life of silence for you or um, your maybe your personal relationship with silence, if it deepens perhaps your connectivity to it. For sure. I, I think that's such a, such a big part of it is, is learning to trust the silence. Because I think, um, you know, I was reflecting as we started with our first moment of silence together at the beginning of this podcast, how 
how it, you know people can have very negative experiences of silence right like silence can be right before something really bad happens silence can be used to intimidate you know to to lock down or hold up a process right and, or to manipulate and so i was um thinking about how um you know having the rhythm of knowing say in a in a very crowded monastic setting we were you know when i was a buddhist nun it was 30 40 sometimes 60 70 sisters in pretty tight quarters like always sharing a, a very small room with like two other people sometimes more and all of your possessions were just in this one little bed box you know that you slept you slept on everything you had you rolled out your blanket and that's where you slept and you had a desk in the study room and you had some books, but that was it. And then all the other spaces were communal and you were, you know, sitting on your small little desk, uh, tables with benches for your meals, like <laughs> not a lot of room. And then in meditation, hall, you know, so you were always around other people and that ability for everyone to be on the same wavelength in terms of silence created space the regularity of it knowing you were all going to be doing that each morning each evening at the meals if you didn't have the physical space the silence created the internal space in your consciousness for things to be um, processed digested and it was a trustworthy kind of silence. You know, we, we talk about it in the Plum Village tradition as noble silence, the silence that heals. And it's not, when I, you know, lead retreats or offer, you know, teachings, I say it's not, you can't talk kind of silence. It's a you don't have to talk kind of silence. It's a you can rest kind of silence and you don't have to be someone or prove yourself as someone or make, you know, an impression, you can just be as you are. And everyone is doing that, giving each other space, giving each other time. And, you know, the other thing that's different in the Plum Village tradition, and maybe many other Mahayana contexts, that's different from, say, the Theravadan contexts of silence is that we look at each other in the silence, like eye contact and gestures and touch is, is welcome. And, and there's a good reason in Theravadan contexts that that's not encouraged. And I've done long silent retreats uh, in the Vipassana tradition where I very much appreciated the different holding of um, interaction. But what part of what for me made the silence so comfortable and so trustworthy and um, so spacious was you could smile at people across the table. You could um, point at something <laughs> that was, you know, inspiring, refreshing, beautiful. You know, we were encouraged to really nourish the beautiful seeds in ourselves and in each other and there were many ways to do that without talking um, where you could hold someone's hand in a silent walking practice you know every day we would walk for one hour in the monastery all together outside um, 
so it would be like a blanket that would just come over this whole group of hundreds of people often walking in silence. And it was encouraged to take someone's hand. So that kind of being connected in the silence, it wasn't a silence that made us separate from each other. It was a silence that actually brought us together. And I, I experienced that when I sat the three month silent retreat at um, the Insight Meditation Society in Barrie, Massachusetts. This is the Vipassana Center. Um, so I did this four years in a row, either a three month or a six week, so half of the, the fall retreat. So I remember for one of the times I was there for three months, I was, I was a nun and there were two other people in my section, in, in my row, and there was the aisle and then there were other I felt so bonded to those two people in my row. We never talked for the whole three months. Both of them stayed the whole three months. I felt like we were really family at the end of that time. So much happened just sitting through the same talks together every day. That just that physical presence, even if we weren't looking at each other, we weren't engaging with eye contact, but just there was something about how the silence really deeply connected us. Um, we, we went through something so deep together um, that I just felt like I, I'm still good friends with one of those people actually. Um, but it was an amazing experience of, um, you know, hearts being bound together. Yeah. I, I, I keep thinking about this tension that stirs up kind of this, this clarity of truth. When I hear you, I hear that, you know, looking in the silence allows us to be seen and listening in the silence allows us to be heard and being in the silence allows us to be known um, even to ourselves and to our, our neighbor we don't speak to. And um, yeah, it was, it made me emotional to hear you talking about just the beautiful ways that we can touch and experience both the vulnerability and the coming to know ourselves more in that loving, that loving silence. Yeah. I, I really appreciate that response, Cassidy, because that paradoxical language of by being silent, I'm heard. And it's, it's like the, the doorways that normally lead out are actually the doorways in. And what I heard when I heard uh, Kyra Jewell laying that out and being moved, I could feel it in my body as she was describing this because I've had a similar experience in a silent setting. I went to a, a Jesuit a silent retreat for 30 days um, and we sat in silence and intense when I was in college and <clears throat> I didn't talk to the people that were there. And it was exactly that the 30 days I felt so close to those people. We never said a word to each other and they were definitely my brothers and sisters uh, by the time that we were done. And so I'm just thinking about how you talked uh, Kara Jewel about healing. Is this the doorway here for you? I know that you do the work with healing and embodiment and playfulness and stillness. Those were all the things that were said in the intro. 
And I'm wondering if this is the place that you started to uncover that necessary component, that the body is a way of knowing the world as opposed to the words and concepts and thinking and talking. And I'm, I'm curious if this is where the seed is or if it came later, this yeah. kind of sense of embodiment. I, I feel like embodiment has been a thread for my whole life. Like I loved to dance as a child. I have a memory of being at a summer camp with our community and I was like dancing till probably, I don't know, really late. Like a child shouldn't be up that late. <laughs> but the music was kept playing and I was like kind of in a trance, that kind of love of dancing. And then I did ballet classes and horse riding and kept really kept dancing through junior high jazz and modern I wanted to be a ballerina that didn't happen but then I really got into capoeira this afro-brazilian martial art as a in um, my um, high school time I went to Brazil I studied it there but I also really got into yoga um, so yoga and dance and so I remember when I was like maybe five years in as a nun, I was living at Deer Park Monastery and I, I was, you know, I was doing a lot with the children, right? Because I did this, this book, Planting Seeds, came out of a lot of, a lot of us, but I was one of the people who really loved figuring out how to share mindfulness with children. But I was always looking for games because, you know, if it's fun, <laughs> half the work, you know, is if you can make, learning happen in a way that's really fun. So I was always sharing games with the adults too, because they were so fun. They were such a good way to do an icebreaker, to start, you know, an activity. We'd be on a walking meditation and we'd stop and we'd play a circle game, you know. So a friend of mine had just come from an interplay weekend and kind of downloaded all of this what she had learned about interplay, this improvisational practice of, you know, using storytelling, movement, song, stillness, silence to unlock the wisdom of the body. And I was just like, you know, beings in a tradition that did really emphasize quite a lot of stillness and silence and being someone who had been such a mover in my body, I was like, I need to move more and we need to move like we need to be moving more. And plus the, the way interplay encouraged. Um, it was it was actually a kind of um, not explicitly a spiritual practice, but I think it's a very deep spiritual practice because the forms help you to work with address digest what's really coming up in your life. But it's, we call it sneaky deep. It's not direct, taking it on directly. It's kind of through this back door of play. So once I kind of learned what interplay was about, I got the books, I studied, I started offering it every week at Deer Park for anyone who wanted to stay behind after the day of mindfulness, you know, five, six, seven people, we would do an hour and 90 minutes of play. And that has become something I've just done as part of every kind of mindfulness teaching. So I've incorporated that kind of awareness of embodiment and not just, you know, movement, but like your storytelling, your, your voice is part of your body, right? Your stillness is 
also part of your body. It's something your body needs. Being close to people, there's touch and interplay, knowing that you can take space, you can push someone away. And you know, all those things are things bodies need to do. Um, so, so that's been, um, you know, a really beautiful thread that, um, and now I'm also um, doing a lot of work with um, somatic processing, experiencing of emotions, learning with Raja Selvam, who has done somatic experiencing, but he has an integral somatic psychotherapy or psychology um, training that I've done, and then working also with Resma Menachem in somatic abolitionism. So I feel like this is just something that is really key, like it's such a key piece for healing of, on all levels, like our personal healing, but our collective healing, when we think of, you know, the ways each of us is impacted by the history of slavery, the history of indigenous genocide, like that is in each of our bodies. And the only way it starts to be accessed and given space to be is when we also start to both give give the pausing, give the space, the silence, the stillness for these things to emerge. And when we really allow ourselves to know them in our bodies, to bring online other kinds of intelligences that we have, like, you know, I am like trembling in my shoulders when I, you know, for example, if I'm thinking of or bringing up a memory or hear about something or you know, my stomach is getting tight, or I'm clenching my jaw, or I want to stick out my tongue and yell, you know, like those things are wisdoms that our bodies have, that we haven't learned in our Western educations, how to give space to, but they're incredible sources of wisdom that are untapped, largely. And so that's another, you know, piece that I feel interplay has kind of supported my mindfulness, my, my Buddhist and, and, and contemplative practice, and now this other piece of somatic work with, with emotions and, and trauma is also complementing and deepening. Thank you for that. that. That's very helpful to see that connection all the way back and, and, and that you have this, it sounds the way you've described it here, this natural affinity of body knowing, you know, that we all have our own skills and we all have this ability. But I do notice, like, I have a younger daughter who she's in her body. She's, she's brilliant. She's great at school. She can read. It's, you know, wonderful. But I notice her body. She really does approach the world in ways that my other kids did not you know, and so we all have kind of our, you know, affinities and gifts and stuff. So it sounds like it was something that you were clued into. And I, I'd like us to shift to your book because I feel like this is a really a great place here because the book really does talk and, and weaves in a lot of embodiment and movement, stillness and, and the idea of justice. And, and so action and contemplation, you know, so to speak. So curious as to why why you wrote the book like the story of the book what's the hope sure. for the book sure well these things aren't <laughs> somehow mysterious right how things happen sometimes i mean i 
I knew so much had happened to me in my life, becoming a nun and then deciding not to be a nun. And that was a huge journey for me. And I just knew like some years ago, I was talking to a coach. I was like, I think I need to write a book, but you know, it just wasn't like something I set out to do. So I was putting up meditations on Insight Timer, this app, free app. And a friend of mine who had a course on Insight Timer said, you know, you should make a course on Insight Timer. So he showed me, you know, how he did his. And so I contacted them. They were happy for me to make a course. So I just thought, okay, 10 day course. What do I know I can talk about? I can talk about how to move through change and transition because that was the biggest thing I ever did was leaving the monastery after um, being a nun for my whole adult life and really not having much context for anything else. And also having lived so much of my life in community before that, I hadn't actually ever lived outside of community because after high school, I went to college. And then after college, I went to Plum Village. So I had six months of working and living on my own. That's all. <laughs> so I'm like, what do I know I can talk about? I know I can talk about change and transition. So I was like, okay, I'll make this 10, 10 day course telling the stories of things that helped me moving through difficulties in my life, especially the thread through the book is things that really helped me when it was really hard. And I was trying to create a whole new life for myself in middle age after, you know, spending all of my young adulthood, you know, in the monastery. And so I created this course. It came out literally the day the pandemic was declared in March 2020. And I just, I, I just was thinking, you know, I'm just going to tell the story, tell what's worked for me. And all because there was an interactive part of the course, all these people were like, this is so helpful for me. I've been stuck in my apartment for three months, all by myself. I mean, all these people going through radical shifts in what had never happened to them before for, for us as a society. So much isolation, people being stuck, not able to go back to their families and, you know, just decisions that, you know, we'd not had to face. And they were saying how much solace the course was providing because it was about, you know, resting into the unknown and accepting things as they are and you know, how do you face this discomfort and, and this how things are changing? How do you really be with that? And so I was going through, you know, many changes in my life too. I was, you know, moved back to the U.S. in the midst of this pandemic. I had been living in Sri Lanka. So Adam Bucko and I, my, my partner, we were, I played some of this course for him. And, uh, and he was like, this is really good. He said, you should make this into a book. You know, you already have all of the transcripts of what you recorded. And I was like, oh, never occurred to me. I sent it to Parallax and they immediately said, we'd like to publish this. So it changed a bit, you know, from how it appeared as an audio course, but most of it was there. And so, 
It's so interesting to me because I had wanted to write a book, but I didn't know it was going to happen that way. And it was so sort of so easy because there was so little that had to be done to turn it into a book that I honestly, I was like, oh, this isn't this isn't the book I'm meant to write because this just kind of happened. This, you know, it's like can't be, you know, it's supposed to be a struggle. You're supposed to like, you know, so it was just this kind of little bit of a gift that it happened in that way because it was just just flowed and it was not a struggle. Our conversation will continue after this brief moment of silence. Please take a break with us and be present in this short period of silence. Well, it's a wonderful book. So it wasn't just a gift for you. It's a gift for us too. And so I'm going to read just a quote from the book, if I may. Uh, on page 20, you write, being in silence with almost no social interaction except a short meeting with a teacher every few days gave me the space and time to become closer with myself as there were no other distractions. It was an important experience of pausing to look deeply and letting my consciousness take its time to find the way. That was just absolutely beautiful. And you were talking, of course, about your discernment process. So um, my question, uh, if this is a question, invitation for reflection, that might be a better way to frame it is what advice or invitation or thoughts would you have for those who are trying to discern in the middle of life, in the middle of the city, in the middle of the 48-hour work week? Um, sometimes we just don't have access to that kind of spaciousness. So I'm curious what thoughts you might have for persons in those circumstances. What's arising is how do we work with the environments that we're in rather than, you know, that's one experience and we can't superimpose that retreat experience onto daily life experience because they're really different. If we hold that um, kind of standard or, you know, that that whole reality of being on retreat and we try to say I should be in that same you know I should hit those same bars or levels it's just a recipe for you know suffering so it 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 has to be it's a completely different way of approaching practice and and this is actually um, I think a great contribution of Thich Nhat Hanh my teacher Thai is you know it's about how you do every little thing 
you can find space, you can find moments that can support your discernment process by the way you brush your teeth. If you brush your teeth knowing you're brushing your teeth rather than, you know, planning for the next thing or, you know, um, ruminating over something that happened earlier in the day, right? Most of us just brush our teeth and we're not really paying attention to brushing our teeth, right? It's like something to get done quickly to move on to something more important. But if we brush our teeth and we feel the brush on our teeth and we notice, you know, our teeth, that we still have teeth to brush, as Ty would say, like that's a happiness, that we have water, that we have toothpaste, and like that can become a moment of real joy and of of some kind of stopping internally, even if our body is moving, our mind is is resting on what's happening in that moment. And that's a very nourishing thing for the mind. Anytime we can do that in our daily life, whether it's making a cup of tea or coffee, and all we're doing is paying close attention to every action that that involves, to boil the water, pull out the mug, to sit down and hold this warm cup between our two palms. That is a moment of real power. And if we can infuse our day, as busy as it may be, as noisy as it may be, with moments where we really are showing up for whatever we're doing, for whatever is happening, if we're riding on the bus, Maybe we notice the sounds. The sounds can be an object of meditation. The brakes of the bus, the honking of other cars, the conversation of other bus passengers. That can become like a a soundscape that we can use to just rest our attention upon rather than need to protect ourselves from. You know, if we don't, If we don't attach to having this solid self that can be invaded by the sounds and the busyness of what's outside of us, if we just open ourselves up to be part of that um, experience and, and allow our boundaries to kind of get more diffuse, then sounds can pass in and pass out of us and they don't bounce off of us and create Uh, you know, a clash. They just come through us and keep going and we don't have a problem with them and they don't have a problem with us and they can become bells of mindfulness, as Thai would say. Anything can be a bell of mindfulness, you know? There's the crying of a baby can be a moment of, do I know I'm breathing in? Do I know I'm breathing out? Can I be in touch with the reality of that baby crying and whoever's caring for that baby and wish for them to have ease. You know, the honking of a car, the bell of mindfulness. Can I notice that I have a body, that I'm alive in this moment? That sound brings me back to this moment. And I can be in touch with, I'm connected to that person. Maybe I'm irritated that they're honking their horn. Maybe I can just notice that, notice the cause and effect. 
So all these ways of connecting to life as it's unfolding versus our mind-made reality, which is what we usually are occupying, that gives us spaciousness. And then whatever question we're having, whatever discernment we're engaged in, all those moments of really being there for our life nourish the ability in us to figure out our way through that question that we're holding. So they're like fertilizer into the ground where that seed, that question of ours is planted. So every time we are, you know, we can be moving through our day very, you know, quickly doing many things, but we don't have to be lost, right? Like I would watch Thai sometimes, other teachers, they move quickly, but they're not rushing. There's a settled back nature, even as they're moving quickly. So that is something we can cultivate in the midst of our daily lives. It helps to have moments to pause physically, like even a five or 10 minute meditation at some point during the day, or maybe a walking meditation where you're mindful of your walk, even on a busy street, that can be very resourcing, very refreshing. All, so any, any kind of formal practice, that's what I just named a sitting meditation, a walking practice, that's really helpful. But then the informal practice of bringing attentiveness, care, um, love to the small daily actions, which was kind of Thai's signature teaching. It's like be mindful 24 hours a day. <laughs> it's possible, you know, be mindful as you're going to sleep, be mindful as you're waking up and then everything in between. That allows us to live very deep lives right in the midst of, you know, a lot of hectic busyness. And so silence is really, it's relative. And it's, um, it can be in conversation with whatever environment we're in. People in prison who can practice so deeply in the midst of all this noise that they cannot control, you know, they talk about being able to find deep silence and stillness and, and clarity inside of them. That's possible. And I think it's also important to, to you, you say this as someone who is now living in New York, and I imagine spend some time in, you know, what's known as the loudest city in the U.S. So um, hearing you say that as reminders, you know, and knowing the vastness of your experience is really, really resonates with me. Um, because you're saying that as someone who's who's had who, who now lives, you know, with more noise than than you probably used to. And I was really struck by by what you said about, you know, being mindful always and that it's possible. And that connection to Christianity and pray always or pray without ceasing. And and again, this this Buddhist Christian thread, um, which seems to be woven uh, in some of your work. And I'm wondering um, about some of the work you're currently doing with your partner, Adam, related to, to that thread, that common thread. Yeah, thank you. So as soon as we 
you know, became a couple, we really, I think so much of what drew us to each other was this um, shared love of contemplative practice. Him from the Christian side, he's an Episcopal priest, and me from the Buddhist side, but also having this Christian upbringing, and he also having quite a bit of time practicing in um, Hindu and Sufi and you know Eastern practices as well. So we began to really um, practice in the mornings together, meditating, but then uh, he taught me Lexio Divina, uh, which I use, you know, in other contexts, we'll do Lexio Divina with Toni Morrison, with my BIPOC Sangha, you know. Um, and I've shared with him walking meditation. Now he does that with his rosary. So he, so we're beginning to kind of really uh, enrich each other's practice in pretty, you know, deep practical ways. Um, and so um, what then arose after maybe almost our first year together, we kind of just felt like we got a download of we were just sort of on our vacation and we started thinking, what do we want to do going forward, you know, looking at our future. And then suddenly we were just making plans to start a retreat center. Like ultimately it would be like an eco village, but now we're kind of starting a little smaller, like a Buddhist Christian retreat center. That would be a training center for, you know, young people, but anyone, but where we live together, you know, um, like a, a residential community and um, and have a kind of um, a spiritual practice of, of bringing both of these traditions together very concretely, morning practice, evening practice, you know, one day a week, the Pustinia uh, desert, you know, practice of taking a, a solo day to, to be in silence, to fast, Things like that, like weaving, the, there's so much richness in both of these traditions. And then we said, well, let's start meeting with others who want to do this. And so we, just in January, we started a Buddhist Christian community for contemplation and action, or for meditation and action. So we meet on Zoom um, the last Monday of the month, generally, for 90 minutes one of us offers a, a meditation or you know contemplative prayer and the other gives a little talk or an interview kind of and then we have time for questions for sharing with the group and it's, you know it's a really lovely group and people are like can we meet more often you know already there's a sense of like uh, hunger for more of, of what's coming together so it's just in the beginning phases, but it's a sense of, um, you know, there's, there's so many people that are between paths that are in both or in one, but curious about another or the spiritual, but not religious, or people who aren't interested in any in institutional, you know, you know, religious or community practice, but who are drawn to how do I realize what I'm here to realize in this human form? And how can I, you know, have that have an impact in the world? And so I think that's the community of people that we're really wanting to 
um, to begin to build and to uh, to work with. And so we'll probably offer a retreat um, maybe early next year on, you know, boot, but, you know, in our practice, so much comes up where we'll be, you know, um, we, we have a practice. So after we meditate, we'll either read from a Buddhist book or do Lexio Divina with the gospel. But so many things will start to spark where we'll be talking about suffering. And he'll say, well, in the Christian tradition, it's like this. And, oh, in the Buddhist, it's like this. And okay, what about this concept of faith? How do we see that from both? So we're like, there's so many topics that we want to explore more deeply from, you know, really from the perspective of being true practitioners, not, not just oh, we want to teach, but like, we want to like dig deep into like, well, how can the richness that you come from inform me? How can the richness that I come from inform you? And it's, there's so much respect and like joy and excitement in like so many insights come when we start sharing our different journeys um, and telling each other's stories and all that. Anyway, it's just like a, it feels like this is really resonating and it's, it's a very timely thing, I think, that we're, we are so polarized in our country, in our world. There's so many... Um, wedges that are being used that are being manipulated to keep people distrustful and you know fearful of each other that this kind of bringing together and especially with the focus on contemplation it's not about you know belief or you know getting in line with you know any kind of dogma or doctrine but it's really like do this like practice let's practice together we eat this food together and we digest it together we're not thinking about it or we're doing it and what if there's transformation that happens and you know that's the proof <laughs> that this is a worthy thing to do um, so so i think yeah that's a very exciting vision that we're we're both uh, holding and kind of you know blowing on <laughs> to start to bring to life I definitely hear a joint book in in that process too. Um, just you know, so those conversations can be shared more widely. Yeah. So, after that answer you just gave us about this interaction of the Christian and Buddhist, maybe possibly even center or or work together, and you and you mentioned the combination of maybe the big vision of an even an echo village. And so something about environmental and uh, issues. I know that a huge piece of this is about lived reality and and kind of justice issues and how we engage the world as it truly is and what meditation and mindfulness can offer in this space. So I'm kind of curious to hear about that piece for you of mindfulness, meditation, silence and how you see that connected with social justice and action in the world. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that, reflections on that. I think really the best work we can do in the world to um, bring about justice, to help relieve suffering, to nourish joy and connection, is to really um, be deeply connected to ourselves. 
to, to really know what our intentions are and where we're coming from. And, and we need stillness and silence in our lives to be able to connect with that. We need other things too. Stillness and silence is, is one of the kind of essential ingredients. We need community, we need time in nature, we need expressive, artistic, creative. We need the learning, the studying, the working, um, the growing, growing beyond our edges. But, um, you know, so much of our work for change comes from urgency and this panic crisis mindset. And it is very true that we're in a, a crisis moment as a species. And if we move from that place, we are not going to move with all of our you know, homo sapien brains online. We're going to be moving from our reptilian amygdala survival mode, which is going to cut out so much of the nuance and the beauty and the you know, resources that are available to us. We're not going to see them because we're using our lizard brains and we're afraid and we're fighting. So um, I'm actually um, uh, co-teaching, co-leading a two-year fellowship that just began for BIPOC youth activists, where we do nine mindfulness retreats over the course of two years, and we meet online. In the month we're not meeting for a retreat, we meet online, we do online practice, we have times for deep listening, for meditation, for stillness, for contemplation, for reflecting on ethical, you know, what does it mean to be an ethical person in this world? Having game changers come and give presentations, you know, on the sort of cutting edge, you know, how to bring spirituality and activism together in really healing ways, especially to support communities of color. And so the key, the key piece, I think, that I, that I think is, is being transmitted and that I really hope will be deeply supportive to these young people is if you can learn how to come back to yourself, how to rest in silence and um, care for yourself in also the the embrace of a community that knows how to be still, then you can really engage in actions that come from a grounded and rooted place where you're not pushed by all of these reactive parts of ourselves. And then your action will have a much greater, deeper effect in the world, even if you don't see it right away even if you're not even around to see the effects of your actions. So it's that level of like deep time, you know, like we do what we have to do in the best way we can do it, not with this short-term, you know, results now, quick fix mindset, which has gotten us into the trouble that we're in, right? We can't solve a problem on the same level at which it was created. So we have to be cultivating these other skills of, you know, this deep teaching, right, from A.J. Musty, there is no way to peace, peace is the way. Whatever you do on behalf of the whole, it has to be already manifesting what you wish to come. It can't be, you can't have a peaceful world if you're working for it in a way that's um, 
hostile or creating really, you know, unskillful experiences for yourself and others. And so the way we do things, the way we talk, the way we listen, the way we compromise, the way we look at each other and, and try to really see the good in each other, those are the foundational pieces that any real change is made of. So the silence, the stillness is a direct, maybe on-ramp for, for the realization of justice. Lovely. Yeah, thank you. Kyra Jewel, this has been a wonderful conversation, and I know we could probably go on for another hour or two, and unfortunately, we don't have that time. But we just want to thank you so much for your presence and your thoughtfulness. Um, even the cadence of your voice has just been beautiful in, in the richest sense of that word. So I just want to thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's really been a pleasure. It's, I love it when people ask me questions and things arise that I haven't put together before or made connections between before. And I really feel like all three of you are holding something very rooted and strong and powerful. And that it, it's a special thing to get to step into where you can evoke these, you know, I have really uh, appreciated and benefited from this time. So I'm really grateful to each of you and the, your skill at doing this and, and being this. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Kyra Jewel. And the, the presence uh, you brought to this allowed us to, to co-create this beautiful, this beautiful conversation and to let it organically unfold, which is always our favorite way to, to have these conversations. So thank you for that presence you brought to us. Mm, thank you. We are encountering silence. I'm Carl McCollman. To learn more about me, please visit carlmccollman.com. I'm Cassidy Hall. Find out about my work at cassidyhall.com. I'm Kevin Johnson. My current website is kevinmichaeljohnson.com. Please visit the podcast's website at EncounteringSilence.com, where you can learn more about each of our episodes and find links to purchase books and other resources we discuss on the podcast. When you make a purchase through a link we provide, the podcast receives a small affiliate commission from Amazon.com. Thank you for doing so. Please also visit Patreon.com forward slash Encountering Silence to learn more about how you can be part of our circle of supporters and share in our efforts to bring meaningful conversations about silence to our all-too-noisy world. Thank you.